In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. The marriage sets the tone for everything else going on in the home, yep. for parenting, for kids, for your ability to set, create boundaries and values. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute, salute you. you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and as you heard with our perfectly synchronized voices i'm here with my good friend dale culver how you doing my man is that in the script man yeah synchronized well, I, I, voices. no i added that i was gonna say harmonize but i'm not a music guy so i went with a swimming motif not music so uh, how you doing man i'm doing really good hey i'm really excited about our guest today i gotta tell you so i i watched a movie last week about called acod adult children of divorce and i was like whoa i'm one of those guys I've got a huge passion for uh, blended families. I, I was a part of that growing up. My wife and I have raised children who are not a part of that because we've been married for almost 30 years, but I'm passionate about marriage, and this guy leads an organization that is committed to helping blended families and marriages. He wrote a book that we're going to talk about today that I underlined so much, our executive assistant, Sammy Farmer, sent me an email rebuking me for all the typing I made she her do. Did. So I am really excited about diving in. You know, this is a topic that... That I don't think church is a void on purpose, but I think we overlook it oftentimes. And this uh, and and Ron dives deep into this subject. Really excited about this. So, what's your man word for today? Um, last time you got mad at me because is it said is it. it divorce? Nope, that's not manly. Uh, commitment. Nope. What is it? Yeah, it is building. Blended. Building. Oh. I could if I said blended, you'd be like, oh. "You're so okay. vanilla." Okay. Yeah. 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 Don't want to be a little vanilla Starbucks girl here. Come on. That's now. right. So even I, though you're... I go there like every day of the week, <laughs> I use the word building uh, because you know you can think of construction building your house, but more important than that is building a family, mm. um, building a home, building a way of life for your kids, and and you know whether you're from uh, a blended family or not. Uh, you're constantly having things come into life that's going to cause you to have to work through situations. Yeah. So you're constantly building, and you're building on something to for something greater. And so that's why I came up with that. I think that's good, man, because building, to me, I'm not a builder of anything except for my family. And uh, building is something that you do on purpose. You have a plan. You, you just don't blindly—I th- tried to build a doghouse one time without a plan. 
Yeah, that dog died. You did put a it new was floor a good, in your shed. It wasn't. Yeah, was the floor, the proud. shed was off, off square. <laughs> well. It was bad. So, hey, <laughs> I want to bring on our new guest today. Our guest today, I'm really excited to get this guy on here. Ron Deal, he's 53 years old, lives in Little Rock, Arkansas, married to his beautiful wife, Nan, of 34 years. So Ron is the most one of the most widely read and viewed experts on blended families in the country. He's the founder of Smart Step Families, He's the director of Family Life Blended for Family Life, the author of over a dozen books, video resources on step family living, including the best-selling book, Building Love Together in Blended Families with Gary Chapman, who we had on the podcast just a couple weeks ago. Really, really excited about this. He has a podcast called Family Life Blended with Ron Deal uh, and a one-minute radio feature. that are These are heard around the world. His work has been quoted, referenced by multiple news outlets such as New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNBC, and USA Today. So I'm really excited to bring our guest on the show today, Ron Deal. Ron, how are you doing, man? Jim, I'm I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here, brother. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, we're so excited. Hey, so Ron, before we throw you into our rapid fire round, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'd love to. Man, I... uh... Wow. Grew up in the Midwest uh, to a missionary family, domestic missionary family, and then a foreign uh, missionary family. Been in ministry all my life. Um, Started out as a youth pastor and figured out real fast I didn't know enough about kids. (laughs) I needed to know more about their families to understand kids. So I went back to graduate school, got a degree in marriage and family therapy with a a mindset toward family ministry, went right back into local church work uh, in California, then moved to uh, a city in Arkansas, then moved to Texas, now back to Little Rock, Arkansas. And for the last, well, 32 years, I've been doing marriage and family ministry in one form or another, but the last 25, 27 or so, really focusing a lot on step family ministry, which when I started, nobody was doing, nobody was really thinking about that very much. And Lord just kind of led me down a path and I was like, hey, we got to help all families, no matter what they are, single parent families, blended families, whatever the case may be, let's, let, our, our church needs to be relevant to that. And uh, I, it's just led me down this incredible road of um, redemption, working with families mm. who have been through something hard and are now trying to make straight the path for their children, yeah. for themselves in a new marriage, whatever the case may be. And it's just a lot of fun. Man, well, being a product of a divorce, uh, I'll tell you what, there's a lot going on there. And I was a youth pastor for 25-ish years, and uh, this was a massive problem uh, that yes. we had to address. So where were you, when you were in California, where were you a youth pastor? I was in, uh, I was a family minister at that point in time. I was in Northern California, right outside San Francisco area, um, Antioch, little suburb yeah. of the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, I went to yeah. Santa Clara University, so I'm uh, from okay. that area. You know, I grew up in San yeah, Luis Obispo. So, hey, I want to throw you right now into the. We're going to throw you the sharks, man. Rapid fire okay. round. <laughs> so what bring I'm it. what I'm doing? Bring it! I love it. What I'm doing here, Ron, <laughs> is I've pulled up five phrases out of your book. Again, dealing with blended families. And I'm just going to throw them at you, and I'm going to let you hit them out of the park and explain what they mean and and uh, how they interact. And you'll have a, just a little minute or so to uh, describe each one. So on okay. page 16, you talked about this, multiple intertwined dynamics. What is that? Well, in blended families, you just don't have husband-wife relationships, which, which is, by the way, the reason that pastors who do premarital counseling with blended couples, pre-blended couples, 
can't just talk about husband and wife. They have to talk about being a parent, being a step parent, being a co-parent with your former spouse, being an ex son-in-law with your former mother-in-law, uh, grandparents who are involved and invested the grandparenting dynamic with step grandchildren. Like it's multi-layered, multifaceted. You have to deal with loss from the past, the present relationships and whether we're going to trust each other in the future. All of that stuff meets head on as soon as they get married. And so I, I just think we're one dimensional to be candid in marriage and family ministry. We tend to be one dimensional. We will talk about parenting and then we will talk about marriage as if those two things exist separate from each other. Well, that's not true. Even in a first marriage, it is certainly not true in a blended family situation. You have to be multifaceted to meet the multiple layers of complexity that step families live every day. That is so true. And speaking of that, on page 17, you mentioned something I think works alongside of this. You called them love associations. Yeah. Well, it's the things that go along with love. It's really about expectations. So if I say I love my wife and I said that out loud, you would have a certain expectation of what that looks like for me. If you say I love my step parent, what does that mean to that child? Well, it might mean I respect you as my mom's husband. Mm. but it doesn't mean I want to hug you. When I say I love my dad, oh, that includes love, that includes follow, that includes we have fun together, I feel completely free in your, in your care, but it doesn't necessarily mean that in step relationships. In other words, there's a different active definition of what it is to love one another. What are the love associations that go along with me saying I love you? And uh, that's something that people have to define. Here's a quick point, and I'll end with this. In a biological family, uh, people really don't have to actively communicate about what, how they're going to get along, what the nature of their relationship is going to be. The fact that you're my son or you're my daughter or you're my brother or sister or my dad brings a certain definition of clarity to it that is automatic. We don't really have to talk about that. It just is. But in step family relationships, every relationship is undefined and therefore has to rely on a great amount of communication. And if I could use the word negotiation, how are we going to get along? What mm. are you going to call me in public? What should I call you in private? Like you have to talk through and decide together how we're going to be family. And most people just don't put that much intentionality into it. And then they get tripped up. My expectations of how you're going to love me are different than your expectations of how you're going to love me. And now we have a bit of a problem. That, that is so powerful. And I wrote, I don't know if this is accurate, but when I, when I first saw love associations, I was thinking, okay, you know, birds, you know, the association principle dealing with people, but you're not saying a love association is, is necessarily that person, but it's more of a comparison of how yeah. I love that person compared to this other person, a step-parent or a step-sibling? Let's put it in some guy language for our audience. Like yeah. you, have, you have your close brothers. Yeah. You, you, and, and those relationships come with certain, if I could say it, love associations. You hug one another, you share with one another, you get in each other's face every now and then. You go, dude, you're not, you're not standing up the way you need to be standing up. But with your new friends or your distant friends or people that you might call, you know, you sort of know them, you sort of see them at church. Well, are they your friends? Well, yeah, but the love associations with those friendships are very different than the ones you have with your close brothers. That's what we're talking about. People in family relationships 
to say, uh, you're my new mom now. <laughs> what does that mean to the child? Yeah. What does that mean to the mother? Like until you get down and define what it means, you can, you can be on two totally different ends of the spectrum. And now you got a problem. Yeah. That, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm struggling in this interview a little bit, Ron, because I am a child of divorce and this brings up a lot of things, but I remember my, my stepdad committed suicide in 2012. He was a great mm. stepdad. Uh, we don't know really what happened there, but I never told him I loved him. My stepmom has been around since 1978, never told her that. So it's yeah. a totally different where I tell my biological parents that all, all my, all the time. So there right. really is a different association. Do I love my stepmother? Yeah, I do, but nothing like my real mom. It's just a whole different dynamic. It is. And you might have even said in your heart or in your mind or to a friend one day, yeah, I love my stepmom. But that doesn't have the same meaning or the same uh, definition or the association. What goes along with that statement is totally different than when you make that statement about your biological so power. So powerful. So how about this one? Page 22, you talk about step families, quote, swim in a different ocean. Yep. Um, don't know if you've ever spent any time in the ocean doing some scuba diving. I've done a little bit of that I myself. I am certified. All right, dude. So you're <laughs> ahead of me, but I've had some good experiences. You know, if you drop into one ocean or one or a lake or one body of water, it's very different than others. I, I had a near-death experience diving in Cozumel one time. A long story, I won't go into it, but drift diving is part of Cozumel waters. Yeah, There's that current strong, there. Yeah. That's right. It's huge, right? And you're moving in ways that you didn't realize you were moving how far away I ended up from the boat. Well, uh, there's also different water temperatures and there's different sharks. And Okay. <laughs> every, every, every person, every man, every marriage swims in an ocean, if you will, a relationship ocean. The waters that blended families swim in are really different than the waters that first families swim in. For example, uh, there are undercurrents, huge undercurrents in blended families, the undercurrent of loss. Mm. It, it, it has not gone away that my dad died. It has not gone away that my parents divorced. It has not gone away just because now I'm in a new family, quote unquote, doesn't mean that the past is really gone. The past is living every single day and it's pushing me in ways that it may not push you mm -hmm. as my step parent. And so we end up in two different places. There's undercurrents. The water temperature is different. I'll be candid. We've yeah. done research and, and we know trust in a second or subsequent marriage after you've been through a divorce, for example, is much harder than trust in a first marriage. How, you know, you can imagine somebody saying, I gave my whole heart to my first wife and look what she did with it. Stomped on it, spit on it and walked out. Do you think I'm going to throw all of me into this new marriage? I love this new woman. I'm very optimistic about her and us. However, <laughs> I find myself blinking every now and then. Like I'm just, I got to shield <laughs> yeah. up just a little bit because I don't want to be hurt again. So the water temperature is cooler. Trust is harder. There are different sharks in a blended family ocean. You have former spouses that can completely ruin your day and cause angst in your new marriage, in your relationship with your children, and they don't even live in your home. You, your former spouse's new spouse, who's not related to any of the children in your household, can have a huge impact on your kids when they go to your former spouse's house. Like There are sharks you cannot, most people just don't anticipate. How do we navigate the waters with these sharks? Those are just some examples of how the ocean is different 
and learning to swim well in your ocean, dealing with those uh, dynamics is how you navigate and learn how to swim well in your marriage and your family. Well, you know, it's interesting using that scuba analogy. I really want to go to Cozumel because I've heard that current, that drift is really cool. My first experience was in Belize on the uh, Belizean uh, barrier reef there, which is the second longest reef in the world. And we had a 150 to 200 foot visibility at 90 feet of water. Well, a couple wow. years later, I went to Cabo and dove with my son, and we had uh, about four feet, four to six feet of visibility. And really, I think the other factor is in a step family, the waters are much more murky. Murkier. Yeah, they're murkier. Yes. It's hard to see where you're going there, which kind of goes along with the, what you're saying there. That's really, really good. That's a powerful illustration. So here's another illustration I really I resonated with. On page 23, you talk about parents... And, and I've seen this in my family. I've seen this with other parents. A, a stepmom comes in or stepdad, and they want to come in, and they want to just, you know, I love you. You're a part of mm-hmm. us. I'm your mom. You know, and you talk about a slow cooker approach, not a blender. Will you explain that? Yeah. Well, we do call them blended families sometimes, um, <laughs> but you don't, you don't cook a step family in a blender. Uh, a, <laughs> blenders have blades. Yeah. And somebody's going to get cut up. So, so the classic illustration of this is, is a step parent who says, Hey, I know I'm not your dad, but why don't you call me dad anyway? We're going to get along great. Now, your heart and intention in saying that is to cook. If I could use that metaphor, you want these two ingredients to warm up to each mm-hmm. other and start merging. That makes sense. Of course, that's what you want. However, when you make that statement, I know I'm not your dad, but call me dad anyway, you have just activated a blade that says to the child, I just chopped up your real dad. He's now somewhere else. I'm replacing him. And that has just made it more difficult for them to merge with you, not less. So there are big mistakes that come with trying to force ingredients into relationship with other ingredients. That's what blenders do. That's what microwaves do. That's what that's what all kinds of cooking methods do. But the one method that really works well for blended families is a crock pot. Yep. Crock pots, sometimes called slow cookers, take a lot of time. They work on low heat. There's not pressure. There is, think about it. You turn on a crock pot with a bunch of ingredients in it and you come back six or eight hours later and what has happened? The ingredients have warmed up, they've softened, and they've merged. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to force anything. That's what we teach people to do in their blended family. Be intentional. You got to have a little heat. Be intentional about moving toward step relationship, stepchild, whatever. Be uh, methodical. Be uh, strategic about it. But you cannot force that ingredient to warm up to you. You have to meet it where it is. And over time, the average blended family, you ready for this, Jim? Mm. The average step family needs between five and seven years to find their family identity and their sense of usness. That's a long time. There's nothing microwavable about this. And the more you try to push it, the less likely it is to happen, the more anger and conflict you experience. The more you relax and trust the crock pot to work for you, the more likely it is you get where you want to go. Yeah, I read that in your book, The Five to Seven Years, and I totally agree with that you know it it, it's you know i think sometimes and you've experienced this more than me when when there's a failure of some sort in the marriage and this new step parent comes in they they may think they can 
instantly capture the loyalty. And it just does not work that way in our families. I mean, I was fortunate to have a stepmother and a stepfather who came in realizing that we were already close to our parents and didn't they came in more as a friend and mentor mm, and never good. tried to parent uh, on the same level, right? And so That's very, it. very important. And, and here's here's a, a big factor in divorce. You talked about this on page 91, and this is the last of our rapid-fire round items, which isn't so rapid-fire. <laughs> there's there's so, so much depth to this stuff. This is a, a really a, – a, there, when, when there's a divorce, there's a death, and you, you have a phrase here. You said, loss is the elephant in the room. Can you address that? It's back to that um, that that undercurrent we were talking about yeah. earlier. It is, it is always there. It is always with us. Um, when we go through a loss, whatever it is, pretty a significant loss, you know, death of a family through death or divorce or a disillusion of a breakup of, you know, a couple being together, whatever the story is, that narrative continues. A quick illustration. I've had people say to me, well, the good news is, you know, my daughter was two when we divorced, so she'll never know anything about us. Hey, look, <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but no, she doesn't have memories. But when she's 10 and has a first crush on that boy in, in class at school, and he says, I think you're cute. And the next day he comes back and says, I don't think you're cute and I don't want to be around you. Then she experiences for the first time what you did to her mother. Mm. And she has to regrieve what happened when she was two. She now has a 10-year-old mind that can imagine. And then when she's 14 and she has her first boyfriend, and it's the same sort of experience of recasting what would life be like if mom and dad were together and why weren't you guys together? And I see how you deal with each other even now, and I have to process that through how I'm growing up and understanding the present. And when she's 18, she has to have two graduation from high school ceremonies, not one, because mom and dad, everybody knows, cannot be in the same room with one another. So Lord knows I got to have two parties. So I have to plan. So she has to regrieve the reality of what happened when she was two. And when she's 26 and getting married, and she's trying to figure out how to have her dad and her stepdad involved in the wedding without there being World War III. She has to regrieve what happened when she was two. The past is never gone. It is always in the room. And, you know, you just have to be aware of that on every level because it's always there somehow impacting what's happening in the family today. You know, I go back to my stepsister. So when I got, when my mom and my stepdad got married, my stepsister and I were the same exact age. So when you talk about attraction, I go, you know, because there was that going on a little bit early on. I was like, oh, this is weird. We're in eighth grade. Nothing really happened, but it's like, oh, but when she got married, her second or third marriage, she has had a lot of marriages. She decided to have her stepdad walk her down the aisle and not her biological dad, who was my stepdad. And Mm -hmm. I was the one performing the ceremony. Wow. So I had to tell her I can't perform the ceremony. I didn't have to tell her I chose to. My stepdad didn't even go to the wedding. It just created a whole disaster because of exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It, it's there. And, and, and that whole picture, by the way, is, you know, it's an ongoing process. One of the things I say is divorce doesn't end family life. It just reorganizes it. Yes. I mean, those people are still a part of your family. Your former spouse is still a part of your family, your life, your relationship network. And there's realities in there that we have to try to navigate and, and, and do well. One of my other books called The Smart Stepdad, I actually have a whole chapter, by the way, on that whole step-sibling uh, romantic attraction thing. It's more common than people think. Yeah. 
And what do you do about it? How do you manage those things? Like that's just another one of those realities of of um, you know the breakup and now the newness is affected. It's all tied together. There's there's so much there. I'm gonna jump into your book. I've got so much. Uh, to ask you, I think this is so powerful. I'm, I'm shocked that we haven't done this before. Anyway, page 18, you said this. Stepchildren often have a basic level of respect for stepparents like they would towards a teacher at school. Problems arise, however, when the parent and or stepparents demand more than that. So so th- that that is a huge thing. We've touched on this a little bit, but what do you recommend stepparents do to find the balance between gaining more respect and not being overbearing with their love. Yeah, let's just talk to the men for a minute. So yeah. if you're a stepdad or moving into that that space, there is tremendous wisdom in recognizing that you can be a adult figure in the child's life, like a teacher at school is, like a coach is on a soccer field or a baseball field. Um, and, you, and you can fulfill those roles fairly early on. You, in other words, you're an authority that is able to get things done. But there are limitations to that authority, and there's certain limitations to the affection that you and the child shares with one another. That has to be built over time. When you start demanding to be treated like a dad, or you have the expectation of a, of a, of a biological father, um, it tends to create resistance in the child. It makes things worse, not better. And sometimes this is the step-parents doing, if you will. But sometimes it's the biological parents doing. That's why in that sentence I said it's the parent and step-parent have to recognize yes. the limitation. Because sometimes in that in our stepdad scenario, the biological mom is the one saying, look, I don't know how to discipline my 10-year-old. I'm leaving that up to you. You're a man. Be the dad. Well, guess what? That 90% of the time is going to work against you the first couple of years you're in the family picture. You, you need to move slowly into that role, not quickly into that role. Slowly into that role, not quickly. And earlier you just you said limitations of the authority have to be built over time. This goes back to our crockpot illustration. And, right. and I want to lead into that. On page 20 and 21 of your book, you said, for example, one quality of good parents is that they don't – this is powerful to me – they don't worry – about winning their kids' approval. You see, chasing a child's approval puts you in a position of weakness. So how does how does patience play a role in winning a stepchild's approval? By the way, this applies to biological parents too in, yeah. in the in the principle. When I'm chasing my child's approval, all of a sudden I'm a slave to whatever it is they want me to do. You know, daddy, I want to go to the party and hang out with those kids. Uh, well, if I say no, boy, my daughter's going to be upset and disappointed with me and she's going to give me those evil eyes. And all of a sudden now I'm saying yes, right? So parenting is in part about not, not needing the approval of your children in that moment. Well, as a step parent, think about it this way. The whole nature of pursuing relationship with a stepchild is I don't have a relationship to fall back on. If I make them upset or mad at me, I can't fall back on we've got a foundation, which you you can always do with a biological child. You're still the dad. But as a stepdad, what are you falling back on? Well, there's nothing there. So there's this extra temptation to suck up. I mean, it's just be real, to give in, to, to be the easy. And it, 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 so the delicacy here is 
Um, if you find yourself in a position where there needs to be a no, you can't go to the party answer, you work with your wife and you let your wife be the one who delivers the no because she has the foundational relationship. She has clarity in her and definition in her authority with her daughter. That's never going to change. But you kind of are walking on fragile territory. It's so working with your wife in collaboration with, that's why teamwork is triple as important in blended family parenting as it is in first family parenting. Well, and that's, you play to the strengths of the biological parent. Well, that's the dilemma, Ron, because that first marriage ended, unless there was a death, it ended badly for a reason. And mm-hmm. so when you have a marriage that ended badly and you start a second marriage, you have to be very careful to navigate this new ocean and all of its murky water You've got to be careful there because you you did something wrong over here, but now you got to do it right here. Well, how do you yeah. know what right is? Right? right. And so I think that's wisdom. I think we, I want you to say this again because you said something really powerful. The step parents need to be very careful to not parent without the biological parent almost as the authority over the given situation. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, in the beginning, because early in the crockpot, when you're all starting to get to know each other and figure out routines in life and defining the love associations of how you're going to get along, uh, you're, you're again, in a fragile place as a step Yes, parent. very much. You, you don't have a relational equity that supports authority. And so you have to play to the strengths. Let the bio parent be the one who plays the heavy yes. and has to deal with the difficult thing while you are earning relational equity with the child then it's easier for you to move more into those roles. Does that mean you're you're castrated as a parent figure? No, because behind the scenes, lots of conversation between step-parent and bio-parent. What do you think about this? How are we going to respond to this? You know what? I think we ought to do this. This is what I'm really, you know, I think this ought to be the approach. Now, honey, stepdad says, I, you got to be the one who says, no, you're not going to the party. I'm right there with you. It's an us decision, but you got to take the lead because... I don't have the foundation to stand on within this moment. Now that's hard. And we just entered into a space where we're talking about, wow, men's ministry doesn't teach men to do that. But in a step family, in the early years, it's a very wise choice to make. You're still leading, but you're leading indirectly through your wife. One more little word picture here. By the way, I've written eight books. The the book we're talking about today is number eight, but we have a whole series of books on the smart step families. And one of them is the smart step dad. One's the smart step mom. In each of those books, there are two chapters for the biological parent. Hmm. So in the smart step dad book, there are two chapters for mom that say to her, here's the role you have to play. So he can play the role he's got to play. Here's how you support each other. And that's a critical partnership. When couples get that going well, it really aids the whole family blending process. That's really good, man. Uh, and I, I appreciate that because I think a lot of times the kids, even with a nuclear family, children will play off of their parents. Oh, yeah. And if you get into a situation now where the child is playing off of the step parent who is more likely to say yes to win the approval of, you have a whole other dynamic. Hey, we're going to come right back. We're going to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back at you. 
Men in the Arena is a non-profit, crowd-funded organization that exists to inspire men to become their best version. We're able to freely offer this podcast, weekly equipping blasts, discussion forums, plus our small group resources to the three M's, active military, missionaries, and men in underdeveloped nations. This could only happen because of a large group of generous donors like you. You can find out more about how to support our ministry at meninthearena.org. So, so Ron, I've got a question for you. I wrote this down. I, 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 I give our generation. We're about a year apart. I'm 54. You're 53. I, t- I tell others that our generation invented the participation trophy. That is not a positive <laughs> thing for me. That's a negative yeah. thing. And and, okay. and there's a phrase that we've our generation. Uh, people speak of our generation. We have the helicopter mom and the bulldozer dad. Do you mm. think that divorce uh, and the the extreme amounts of divorce in our culture have led to this participation trophy. Do you think that's a product of of uh, divorce, or is it just the mm. sign of our times? I think it's possible that indirectly there's a link, um, just from the standpoint of I think single parents in general always feel like they're playing catch up. Yeah, and and feel like they have to make accommodations sometimes to their kids in order to be. It's, it's the, um, how do I say this? It's the political move to kind of save relationship when you know the children are moving to the other home and oh. Oh, they, got a, they got a new dad over there. So I, as the bio dad, have to kind of play it a little nice here because I want them to like me more than I, they like their stepdad. I mean, it, it, that's a little story we could come back to if you want. Um, yeah, well, you know, you, talk, you, you alluded to choosing sides. And yeah. that was a, a big issue when my parents got divorced. Who are we going to live with? My sister went back and forth over and over again. And th- th- there seemed to be a, a choosing of sides thing and the parents trying to win the other, uh, the children's approval. On page 29 of your book, you said this. And I, I think this is, has a lot to do with it. You said step families and guilt seem to go hand in hand. It could be guilt based on actions such as adultery, effective, effectively ending the marriage and causing emotional wounds in children, or passive guilt a partner feels when they were left by an ex. They didn't make the decision to leave, but they feel they could have prevented it somehow. So let's talk about guilt. I know in, in, our, in my personal situation, my uh, dad uh, uh, was unfaithful. And that caused uh, uh, the divorce, and so there was a lot of shame put on him by the ch- uh, me, especially as the oldest. Uh, but there was a lot of guilt associated with that. There was definitely a "it was your fault, not your fault" type of thing. So let's talk about guilt and and blame and shame for a moment. Do you find that there's oftentimes one parent that the children see as at fault more than the other? And what do you recommend recommend to parents who are dealing with guilt and shame from a ruined marriage? I don't know that I would say often that children blame one more than the other. I do think sometimes children definitely have their opinions. Yeah. And like you who witnessed something come down. Now, did you know uh, as a child all this backstory? No. No. Did you know both sides of this? No. There's always more to the picture, but you definitely saw something. And from that, there was blame and, um, you know, hard feelings attributed to that, to that person, to your dad. And by the way, kids can be very passionate about this mm-hmm. to the point where, boy, you know, I just don't know how to follow you anymore. I don't know how to have a relationship with you. And, and I'm kind of protecting mom now because of the fallout of what's happened as a result of your choice. I mean, that could very much divide the family. 
sometimes it's it's less intense than that, but children are just trying to figure out what in the world has gone on, what has happened in the my parents' world. But the bind for kids is at the end of the, end of the day, they still love both mom and dad, yes. and but they, they want to retain those relationships more often than not. And so sometimes they even overlook blame to the point where what, it drives one parent crazy. Like, hey, you just need to know. No, I don't want to know uh, because I want to love my dad. I want to love my mom. I don't want to get caught up in your battles. You can certainly understand that you know, yeah. perspective from kids as well. It's tough to navigate all that. What needs to happen? Uh, in the case where if you were at fault, you need to seek forgiveness. I mean, manning up in that situation mm. is going to your kids and apologizing and owning your stuff and saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And here's my path to rebuild your trust in me as a person. I'm going to walk with integrity this point forward. I know it's going to take a while for you to trust me fully, but this is what I'm going to do. There's still consequences from those big decisions that you made. And, you know, there's still going to be fallout. You can't run away from that, but at least you choose that path. Of, of seeking forgiveness. Sometimes it's about offering forgiveness if it happened to you. Mm. If you as an adult can lead the way with that, sometimes children will follow your lead in forgiving the other parent. Um, I, and I realize, you know, every one of these decisions to forgive is difficult because it comes with this, well, does that mean my children are then going to be put in a place where they're going to be hurt again by my former spouse who they did it to me, who knows if they'll do it to the kids growing up. Like there's lots of questions there. I don't have answers for, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know more often than not forgiveness is a really good path. And it, it, it does so much for us, obviously, because our, our Lord taught so much about that and how important it is that we are able to, in effect, take our lives back and move beyond the hurt of that offense. And that's what forgiveness does. Yeah, that's really powerful. I, I'm just, again, reflecting back to my own experience, and I think that's a powerful statement that a parent seek the forgiveness of their children mm-hmm. and then also forgive the spouse uh, for what they may have done to hinder the marriage. So how, how, is it true that is it true the divorce rates in the church are the same as out of the church? And if that's the case, no, why is that? Talk to me, yeah. Yeah, it's not true. Um, I would recommend to you Shanti Feldhahn's book, uh, The Good News About Marriage, where she really, the whole book is about divorce stats and what they really are and what they're, what they're not. Um, you know, the much quoted Barna statistic that yeah. said divorce within the church is the same as it is outside the church. She actually did the legwork, went back to the researchers, and they said, you know, we never said that. That was misconstrued <laughs> from a report that we made. And by the way, our data set was on this group of people, not that group of people. And so when you chase it and in collaboration with Barna, they were able to substantiate that the divorce rate for Christians who are active in their faith and have some expression of that of faith in real life, that the divorce rate may be as low as, you know, 20% or, you know, it, it's far different than it is in the culture. For couples who pray together, it's very low, right? So it, it, it's all about how real is faith in your life and does that really change you? into being somebody, that Im- greatly improves your marital relationships. Yeah, that's really good. We had Paul uh, Friesen on our podcast recently, and he's written several books on marriage, and and he quoted a statistic from somewhere that talked about couples that pray together. It's like a one in a thousand mm-hmm. get divorced. It's just astronaut. So you got to... And in, the, in any church, you have various levels of 
spiritually developed people. And so when mm-hmm. you take a quote and say in the church, it's you got to be really careful with that because exactly from my experience, about twenty percent of the people in the church get it, and the other eighty yes. percent are kind of you know just starting their journey. So it is a different dynamic as well. So that's really really good. Well, you talked about loving God. Let's talk about let's talk about loving. Uh, each other. And you wrote this book with Gary Chapman. Gary was on our podcast a couple weeks ago. Gary wrote the wildly popular five love uh, love languages, which I actually, in response to our podcast, I had my wife and all of my children and their girlfriends, I have three sons, take the test. And so in response to that, my wife is doing a spa day with my oldest son's girlfriend, who her, her gift is a quality time, her love language. And so uh, kind of fun story. We just bought a authentic Lambeau Field made uh, Green Bay Packers pin for my son's other son's fiance, who is a gifts of uh, receiving gifts girl. And so really love, love, love his work. Uh, you wrote this book with him. And so on page 43 of the book, you said, if we insist on loving others in a predetermined way, rather than speaking their love language, our efforts will miss the mark. Now, I want to scoot down a couple pages to page 45 because this really impacted me in my marriage as I thought through how I love Shanna and has she thought through how she loved me because I had never taken the test before. I came back and I said, honey, my love language is words of affirmation, not physical touch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Surprise. So yeah. (laughs) And so uh, on page 45, you said uh, dialects are often discovered by trial and error. First, we must discover the primary love language in the blended family. Then we explore the various dialects to express that love language. That's huge. Can you mm-hmm. walk us through that? I mean, this is, will you unpack love languages and dialects with us for those who didn't hear our interview with Gary? Yes. Yeah, so in terms of just language, like we have different parts of the country, people have different dialects. You can go to the Southeast part of the U.S. and there's a there's a, a, a tone and a tenure and words that they use. And it, here we're talking about step families, for example, in the Southeast part of the United States, a blended family is a biracial family, bi- oh, biracial wow. couple. And, and more often than not, that's what it's in reference to when people use that terminology. They're not talking about a step family, but everywhere else in the U.S., blended family typically means step family. So that's a good example of dialect changes meaning. Southern tone, if you live in the Northeast and you have that Boston accent, you know, all of those are elements of dialect in terms of language, in terms of relationship language. Let me give you a a story we tell in the book that I think makes a couple of really good points. So talked with a guy, true story, his first wife, uh, her love language was quality time. His second wife, her love language was quality time. First wife, before she uh, passed away, uh, they could sit and watch a movie together and it was a home run and they shared it and they talk about it afterwards. And that counted if you could say it that way for her, that was quality time. So he goes into his second marriage, just assuming, Oh man, I quality time. Your love language is quality. I know how to do that. Well, guess what? The dialects were different. And so wife and second marriage, it needed to be eye to eye, toe to toe, knee to knee. We need to be talking, communicating, sharing. Uh, that is quality time. Sitting and watching a movie is just time spent, but not necessarily quality time. So he had to unlearn something he learned about marriage in his first marriage and relearn something new about marriage in his second marriage. 
all of us have to do this on some level. You have your first child, you kind of figure out a few things, you think you got it down, and then you have your second. And you're like, <laughs> I know nothing. Yeah. I, I, I have to start over again. Right. Um, same thing's true with blended relationships. There's nuances, there's challenges. So yes, pin it down. Be a student of your wife, of your kids, of your stepkids. Be a student of what really speaks to their heart and makes them tick. And oh, by the way, as a step parent who's moving in in a crockpot pace, yes, you can't necessarily dive into their love language the way you think you might want to. That's the reason Gary and I wrote this book is because I went to him and said, man, I, I'm such a fan of your material, but... <laughs> Blended families who implement it without wisdom are going to have it backfire. A step parent who goes to a stepchild and says, oh, your love language is physical touch. Come here, give me a hug. Might just discover that results in some conflict. Like the child isn't ready for that from you. Why not? They don't trust you. They don't know you. The love associations have not been clearly defined. And now we have a problem. So you got to learn to approach that love language with um, patience with a whole lot of intentionality. Start with something that's easy. So with a child that's physical affection, you, you might go with a fist bump. You might, you know, might do the, uh, you know, side sort of bump or the, we're playing a game and we just kind of get physical that way. But I'm not asking you for a bear hug until you're ready for it. Yeah, that's so, so true. You know, it's a really funny story. Uh, all, all, my, all of my 28 years of marriage, I thought my wife's love language is quality time and physical touch because she just loves, 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 loves a foot rub while we watch TV. So I do that like five nights a week, right? Well, we take the test. Lo and behold, her, her love language is acts of service. <laughs> Happens to be that the acts of service manifest in physical touch through a yeah. foot rub or through coffee being made. And all, most of our fights being married have been around the house not being clean. What mm, I thought was nitpicky was on her. Well, I thought it was her being a nag. It was it was about her saying you don't love me. So mm. this is this is monumental. It's not enough to learn the dialect or the love language of your stepchildren and your wife, and you have to learn the dialect. You it's just have stuff. to learn the dialect. So this yeah. has been stuff I've learned in recent, like I said, uh, recent recent days. So it's very 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 good. So you talked about uh, you said something a little bit ago. You said they don't trust you because the love association may not have been clearly defined. On page 43 of your book, you said, the most overlooked and underestimated needs of any relationship is the need for trustworthiness. Mm. To be able to count on someone to, this is really powerful in a blended family environment, to know them as reliable, responsible, and dependability is imperative. Uh, de- uh, actually, that's a typo, a dependable. And on page 17, you said, you see just below the surface in nearly every new blended family relationship is the hidden question, do you really love me and can I trust you? So I know you're going to go back to this crockpot analogy again. How do, a, how do we, or how, I'm not a step-parent, but how does a step-parent build lasting trust into a relationship? With a stepchild. Yeah. Well, some big key words here. <laughs> be, be reliable. Be dependable. Be a man of your word. Mm. Uh, that's the stuff that trust is made of. Um, be patient when they find it difficult to trust you. If you're fragile, like, you know, you can imagine somebody going, man, I was reliable. 
and this kid still is cold to me. And so forget it. I don't have time for that. Oh, so you're not reliable. Uh, <laughs> right? Being reliable through their tentative nature of their approach to you, them being cautious about you, them trying to figure out how to put you into their heart when they already have so many other people in their heart. Like being being mature about responding to that helps to show your reliability. Here, here, here's another one. Imagine a, a step parent driving a kid to school. <clears throat> it's a stepdad. Hey, dude, um, step Father's Day is just around the corner. And uh, if I were you, I'd be missing my dad. Mm. You're gonna you're gonna be with us that weekend. Not gonna be with him. Man, that stinks. I'm sorry. I totally get that. I'm wondering how can I help you honor your dad for Father's Day. Think about what's happening here. This stepdad is saying to this child, I am not intimidated by your relationship with your father. That is a good relationship and I'm going to support it. I'm not competing with your dad. Yes. This is a stepdad saying, I get your sadness. I can anticipate that. I can enter into that space. I can hear you talk about your affections for your dad and I'm not offended by that. See, that shows himself to be somebody of character, somebody who is reliable, somebody who is compassionate towards the child. And the irony is that child will move closer to that stepdad sooner Yes. than if the stepdad takes a posture of, no, 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 this is our weekend. Forget your dad. You don't call him on Father's Day. You're here with us. See, that message says, I'm competing with your dad. And now all of a sudden, you are not safe to me. Trustworthiness is about being safe, reliable, predictable over the long haul. How many times in scripture, Jim, we just stop right here and just, this is nailing. We talk about love all the time, God's love. Yes, but the scriptures are just as quick to talk about his steadfastness. Yeah. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The love, you know, how many times the scripture emphasize the fact that it never goes away, that he is trustworthy to us. What if God wasn't? trustworthy. Where would we be? Okay. He loves me, but he doesn't show up. He loves me. He says he loves me, but what does that mean? I haven't seen him actually do what he says he's going to do. He doesn't keep his promises. That would throw off everything in our relationship with God. And it absolutely does the same in our earthly relationships. You know, that's so interesting. As you were talking, I remembered a quote from the movie Blended with Adam Sandler. Did you watch that movie? Yes. And in that movie, he said, it should be boring how dependable a parent is. It should, (laughs) the kids should be bored that you're at every game. The kids should be bored that you are there when you say you're going to be there. And for a step parent, I would guess that that is elevated, that you have to be where you say you're going to be, when you say you're going to be, you have to be there so that you can earn that trust and be dependable. You know, let's, 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 let's get the rubber meeting the road right now because all of this blended family uh, talk, which is so, so good, and the murky waters and the elephant in the room and all of these things are so powerful. But on page 77, you said this, and this is really, I think, where the rubber meets the road. Fear of another divorce is predict- predicted with 93% accuracy whether couples had a strong, vibrant marriage or were poor and unstable one. You said that fear cascades negativity on the relationship and leads spouses to be guarded and cautious with their heart. This is a this is probably the foundation of blended families is a strong marriage. Can you talk about this? 
Yeah. So in a book I wrote with Dr. David Olson, the largest yeah. survey ever done on couples creating step families, the book's called The Smart Step Family Marriage. This was a something that came out of our research. Uh, what we found is that if you're uh, tentative about committing to your spouse, for example, uh, if you're afraid of another breakup, if you're living with this impending sense of insecurity and doom that, oh no, if I give all of me, I'm going to get hurt in this deal because I've been there, done that before, mm -hmm. and I don't want to go through that again. And so I'm walking around with my shield up. I'm walking around stiff arming you, guarded, cautious about giving all of me. And how that, neg how that cascades negativity is that guardedness shows up in little moments. Um, we're having a conversation. How was your day? And, and you're like, why are you asking? Oh. It shows up as suspicion it, or, or it, it shows itself this way. I tell you about most of my day, but not all of my day, because I'm afraid of that one little fact that if you knew that fact, you might take that. My, my wife, man, I can't tell you what she did. She was, you know, she was so insecure that she always accused me of stuff that wasn't true. So I'm going to avoid telling you everything about my day because I don't want you to feel insecure in our relationship. And so now I'm not sharing everything. That it looks like I'm hiding something. Guess what? Now you've just given your wife cause to suspect something because you're hiding something. Mm -hmm. It cascades negativity into uh, your finances. Oh, for sure. I see that all the time. Exactly. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm holding a little back. I'm we're not, not going to combine. About I'm spending. We're not going to combine money. Nope, I'm spending nope. my money over here. You know, I, just because. Hey, and so it cascades into your love making. We have sex. I don't make love. Mm. Those are two totally different postures. Yeah, I'm there in physical body and I'm pursuing some pleasure and I get something out of this connection with you, but I am not revealing my heart and my soul and giving you all of me, surrendering all of me in this moment, because if I do that and you leave, right? So you can begin to see how this fear cascades negative moments into every element of the relationship. And what we found is that that was predictive of whether couples had really healthy, strong relationships or very, very poor ones. Man, that's so powerful. Well, I'm going to end with this last question, Ron. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Here we go. Last question. <clears throat> we believe when a man gets it, everyone wins. We believe that passionately. On page 40, you, you, you share about that you like to joke that men are hunters when it comes mm -hmm. to falling in love, which I agree with that. You know, we hunt things, we hunt other things yeah. like our career, our, our man cave, and and or becoming a video game champion, God help us. On page 83, you said a committed, loving marriage is the first and last motivator <clears throat> of step-family integration. A poor or dysfunctional marriage is the equivalent to unplugging your family's slow cooker. No more heat, no more family integration. So let's end with a final word to men. What do you want to tell a man about this hunter-gatherer mentality in regards to a marriage and the pursuit of their wife? Keep hunting your wife. Keep hunting harmony. Keep pursuing her. Even after you've caught her, you know, the other part of the joke is once once we've caught, uh, you know, a wife and put a ring on her finger, we've often feel like we've caught our limit. So we start hunting other things. Yeah. Um, you know, and the answer is no, you have it. You know, it's a, it's an endless pursuit um, to to keep that to keep a fresh desire in your heart to pursue her. And it's not from the standpoint of instability or insecurity. Boy, you better do this. Or you're going to lose everything. No, 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 no. From a posture of of uh, stability and safety, 
confidence pursue her as a way of expressing your love for her. And the reason that's so important, this is true whether it's a first marriage family situation or a blended family, the marriage sets the tone for everything else going on in the home, yep. for parenting, for kids, for your ability to set, create boundaries and values and articulate faith and demonstrate and walk that out. The bottom line is if kids are seeing you guys love each other, then when you say, I love you, they have a sense of what that is. When you say God loves you, they have a sense of what that is. When, when, you, when they see you be patient with your wife, when they see you manage yourself well in the midst of conflict, then all of a sudden they can understand God managing himself well with them when he's disappointed in them and they feel ashamed of themselves and they're not afraid of God. That is deeply profound. And that's why it's so important that we continue to pursue our wives well. That's so good. I love what you said here. Keep a fresh desire in your heart to pursue her. Man, I'll tell you what, there's so much there when a, sol- a marriage is solid, and there's so much trust that's built and so much confidence that's built within the, the family unit, especially the children and the stepchildren who are experiencing loss, who are wondering, is this one going to work? You know, there's so many questions going on there. They're trying to swim in some very murky waters with a lot of sharks around, and so that's so powerful. Ron, thanks so much uh, for coming on. Uh, th- there, there's so much depth to this conversation. We just scratched the surface, and so guys, let's get our boots on the ground. We always give you an action item for today. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Will you go check out Ron's website at smartstepfamilies.com? He's got a ton of resources. Uh, he really is the expert in this area. If you are a guy involved in a second marriage, man, get get a hold of this guy's resources. There's so much out there. Make sure, guys, you head on over to menandarena.org. Grab a free copy of my book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters. Guys, while you're there, make sure you sign up to join one of our many virtual teams that happen around the country by clicking the Join Our Program button. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. You've been listening to the Men in the Arena podcast. If you hunger to be your best version, then join thousands of men from around the world in our Men in the Arena forum on Facebook. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of biblical manhood. Make sure to explore our website at meninthearena.org, sign up for the weekly equipping blast, and take advantage of our many free resources designed to help you become your best version of a man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, Everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.